is entitled Every <coughs> The Priorities of a Muslim, Jihad, Khalifa, or Dawah. The speaker, I'm sure almost all of you know already, doesn't need much of an introduction, Sheikh Abu Amin Bilal Phillips, who's been active in the Dawah for well over 20 years. I don't know how much, how, how much longer than that, Sheikh. In the Dawah and Islam and teaching, uh, translating and writing as well. Uh, quite a number of books. And he's done a tremendous amount of work in the, in the field of Islam. And we'd like to welcome today again uh, Sheikh Abu Amina Bilal Phillips. الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحابه ومن استنى بسنة رامتين Our praise due to Allah and Allah's peace and blessings and his last prophet Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day as my brother said the topic today is on the priorities of a Muslim and this topic was chosen because there are a number of different groups calling to a variety of different priorities everybody agrees on Islam However, what should we focus on as Muslims, particularly Muslims here in the West? Should we be focusing on jihad or should it be on khilafah, that's establishing the caliphate, or should it be on da'wah? Or should it be an ibadah? These are questions which face many of us, puzzling questions, especially because all of them seem important. Who can deny that jihad is important? Who can deny that having a caliph a Khalifa over all of the Muslim world is not important. Who can deny that da'wah, calling people to Islam, is not important? And who can deny that ibadah, that is, the basic acts of worship which have been identified by Prophet Muhammad when he told us that Islam was built on five five basic principles. Those are the basic acts of ibadah. Everything else is an extension from these acts. So where should we as Muslims here focus, put our focus? Because we cannot do all of them at the same time. So we have to choose among them those which we will start with Having established, we shift on to the next level, so we have to put them in orders of priority in order for our Islamic 
activity or Islamic movement or Islamic work to be effective. Now, as I see it, for us to determine where our priorities should be, we have to answer the most fundamental question that every human being asks himself at some point in his or her lifetime. Not just Muslims, but every single human being asks himself or herself, why was I created? Why am I here? What am I doing in this world? Why did God create? These questions are questions which each and every one of us reflects on at different points in our lives. We have some answers which are given generally, but oftentimes these answers don't satisfy us. They seem somewhat simplistic. We still wonder. Why me? Why here? So, before looking at the issue of priorities and putting things in order, I intend to look into the issue of why was man created? I know all of you, generally speaking, in the back of your mind, you're saying, to worship Allah, khalas. What else is there to be said? Why do we need to have a big long topic about why we were created when we all know it's to worship Allah? Wait. If this is presented to a non-Muslim, why were we created? You say to worship Allah. Then the next question they ask you, then why did Allah create us to worship Him? And then you're stuck. Well, I, I don't know. It means in your own mind, in our own minds, it's not really clear to us. Why did Allah create us to worship Him? So, what I intend to do is to look into this topic to give us some clarity to understand our position and, and from that, inshallah, we can then look out to the world around us and determine what should be our priorities according to Islamic work. The question, why did Allah create us? Why did, why was man created? For some people, and we have to deal with those people around us, who don't consider there to be any purpose in man's creation because he is just a product of evolution. The forces of nature have produced him. And just as we don't have apes or dogs or cows thinking about why they were here, why they created, well, we don't need to think about it either, really. 
course, that being the basis of the philosophy of Western society, that man is without purpose, then the whole issue of government, morality, etc., has no basis in revelation. There is no guidance there. And the result of all that is, of course, the corruption that we are living. So for Muslims, we say that when we go into this topic, we have to seek our understanding from divine revelation and not human speculation. Because human speculation has no bounds. We can imagine all kinds of things. And of course any of you who have studied the philosophy of religion or philosophy and you can see how many opinions that exist about why man, why existence, you know, all the variety of philosophies that are out there, nobody can say this one or that one, which one is uh, correct, which one is incorrect, because there is no guidance behind it, no, no divine revelation. And it is only from divine revelation that we can determine the reality of our creation. Because it is Allah who has created us and He knows the purpose of our creation. We can hardly understand ourselves, much less trying to understand the essence of things. Why are we here? So it is for Allah to inform us. To the revelation in the Quran and through the Sunnah which was brought by his last messenger as well as the messengers before. Now if we are to look initially into revelation to determine why was man created there is an even deeper question that we should ask before that. Why did God create? This is an even deeper question before we even get to man. Why did God create? Because man is not the greatest act of creation that we should be so focused on why man created. No. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Ghafir, verse 57, Indeed, the creation of the heavens and the earth is greater than the creation of mankind. But most of mankind don't realize it. Man is not the greatest act of creation. This universe is far more complex, far more magnificent 
from man. So, the issue of creation should then go to why create, as opposed to simply why create man. Why create man and the universe and everything else, why create? Fundamentally, we can say that the creation is the natural consequence of the attribute of Creator. Allah is the Creator. That is one of His attributes. That's what He has informed us. That being His attribute, the Creator, the natural consequence, the product of that attribute is His creation. A painter, if we were to make a similitude on a lower level, who tells you, I'm a painter, and you ask him, well, where are your paintings? He says, I don't have any. What kind of painter is this? The concept of a painter who doesn't paint, I mean, there's some kind of something that gelling together here. Of course, Allah is beyond this. But we can understand even on the simplest level that the two go together. The perfection of a painter lies in his painting. His quality, his ability to paint is manifest in his paintings. And Allah, beyond all that, as creator, with the, this quality of creation, it is manifest in the creation itself. Allah didn't create out of a need that He needed uh, to create, so He created. No. The fact that He is the Creator is manifest in the creation. Furthermore, when we consider the act of creation, this act with regards to Allah is unique. Though we use the term so-and-so created a painting or he created a car or he created different things in this world, human beings create things, we use this terminology, actually it is in a, a limited sense. Human beings really don't create. They manipulate. Because they can only quote-unquote create what already exists. They manipulate when we make a chair or a table. We create this table. We didn't create the wood. We had to take it from a tree. We didn't create the metal. makes the screws and... No, we had to melt down stones and take the metal out and form it. So, we are not creating from nothing. We are manipulating what Allah has already created into different shapes and forms which are useful to us. We call it creation. But the real act of creation, that is creation from nothing, this is unique to Allah alone. And this is a concept which many people 
in ignorance because they couldn't grasp the idea of creation from nothingness it led them to conclude that the world is a law. Those who say inside of each and every atom is a law. You have people who call themselves Muslims saying this. Non-Muslims have said it before. And we have Muslims who claim this. But Allah inside each and everything is a law. Because Allah is the reality, everything else is fake. This is their interpretation. That means then that the creation is Allah and Allah is the creation. Very, very dangerous concept. It has led even some of those who make this claim to say you don't have to worship other than Allah. You don't have to worship anyone outside of yourself. You know, Ibn Arabi is famous for this statement. He is considered one of the saints amongst the uh, so-called Sufi uh, religion. Ibn Arabi said, No need to worship one outside yourself. You are Allah. It is sufficient to worship yourself. So this is shirk. This concept of Allah being within His creation, no distinction between Allah and the Creator, it leads them to this shirk. Because they are unable to accept the uniqueness of Allah's creation. They compare the act of creation of Allah to human creation. That is, just as we manipulate, Allah took pieces of Himself and made the earth and the universe. And this is what it comes to. Others will say that uh, all human beings have inside of themselves Allah. You know, there's a part of Allah which is inside each and every one of you. And the whole essence, the purpose of life, right, is then for us to realize that we have Allah inside of ourselves, remove the material blocks that blocks us from Allah, and again become one with Allah in what they call fana. And this again, the Sufi religion teaches this. Becoming one with Allah. Returning back to Allah in this sense. But this in fact is part of the teachings of shirk. Satan has deluded man into this imagination. It is part of the belief of the Hindus. That's their belief. Nirvana. The concept when you die, you're reborn again. When you die, you're reborn. And you move up in stages. If you're a good boy or a good girl, each time you're reborn, you go up higher and higher. So when you reach the top, you know, you reach the peak. When you die the next time, you become one with universal soul, nirvana. That's the end of rebirth. So your whole purpose to existence is to return and become one with God again. This is all, as I said, a product of an inability to understand the concept of creation from nothingness, which is unique to Allah. This is why Allah says, there is nothing like him and he is the hearer and seer of all. So when we try to interpret Allah's creation 
that the way we create, then we have made him like his creation. And it leads us ultimately into these aspects of shirk that I mentioned to you, which is quite common amongst the Muslim world to do. Because when you look into the various branches of the Sufi religion, where they have prescribed uh, various acts of, of uh, purification, you know, what they call it, vicar, you know, exercises where you torture the body, you spin and you dance and you jump in the air and you rock and roll and all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, what is the purpose of it all? They will tell you, you know, to liberate the soul from this earthly body and to achieve that state, you know, of fana or ittihad, variety of names that they have for it. It's this concept which led Al-Hallaj, you know, many centuries ago, when he was promoting this idea and he was put before a panel of judges, questioning this concept that he was expressing, and they asked him to recant, to take this stuff back. This is some form of shirk. He stood up and opened up his cloak and said, there is nothing inside this cloak except Allah. So they executed him. And of course, you know, those in the Sufi religion, they have stories about how when they cut his head off, as it was rolling, it was saying, Allah, 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 Allahu Akbar. You know. Of course, it might have. You know, if the head was, it was rolling, might have said these things. Yani, that is, Shaitan, the jinn, may have entered and said these things as the, the calf of uh, the Israelites when Prophet Musa salam, left Egypt and uh, the people after crossing the Red Sea, you know, they had this desire to have a God that they could see, so they made a golden calf for worshipping. Now this golden calf was saying, oh, you know, like the calf do. <laughs> Ooh, it was talking to them. This is what convinced them. This is, uh, this is uh, the real thing here. Well, we know it wasn't the cast saying this. This is the jinn. The evil jinn can enter into physical entities and make sounds and give these impressions. So, there's no problem for us to say, okay, yes, maybe historically, yes, when they cut off Halaji's head, it was rolling and saying, Allahu Akbar, Allah, Allahu, Allahu, Allahu. Obviously, yes. This is part of the test. If we are clear, if we are clear in terms of creator and creation, this is no problem for us. Allah is the creator, and everything besides Him is His creation, which He created from nothing. It is not Him. Nor is he it. This is the pure concept as taught by the Quran and by Prophet Muhammad and his companions. And the early generation of righteous scholars among the students and the companions and those who came after them. The best of generations. That's how they understood this matter. There was no confusion in their minds. It wasn't until Islam spread into areas like Egypt and uh, uh, Persia, uh, Syria, in these areas where the Christians had already gotten into deep philosophies trying to explain how Jesus was a man 
and he was God at the same time, how God became man and man was God and you know, all those various arguments that they had with different branches and sects and you know, they would gotten into Greek philosophy to explain how it could be and could not be and when they came into Islam they brought it with them. It's reality. It's not something we should, you know, necessarily condemn them for or feel is uh, unusual, no. It is natural when a person converts to Islam that they will carry with them what they believed before. Whatever has been clarified for them on the basic principles, they will accept and reject the things which obviously contradicted. But it doesn't mean that every last thought that they had, everything which was wrong in their concepts and their philosophy and their ideology has now been erased. No. They will carry these things in with them. This is why in the latter years of the Prophet life, prior to his death, when he was coming back from one of the, the battles, and uh, his companions asked him to set aside a tree for them, that they could hang their weapons on. Like the way the pagans, they used to have these trees that they hung their weapons on. Believing that when they hung the weapon on the tree, it now became super powerful. Some power was coming from the tree into those weapons. You know, the shields would now block steel and their, their swords would cut through the enemies. It's what the pagans believed. Some of the companions who had newly accepted Islam, they asked of Muhammad to designate one for them, a special one, an Islamic one. Right? They didn't want one like what they understood, like you know what the pagans had, this was wrong. So they didn't want one like the pagans one, but they were asking the Prophet to designate for them an Islamic tree that they could hang the weapons on. These were companions of the Prophet Muhammad And he had to clarify for them. He said, you know, you all are like the companions of Musa. <laughs> asked to have this calf built. And we clarified for them that all of this is shirk. There's no place for it in Islam. So if it could happen to some of the companions, then we cannot blame those people or the generations that come after them if they come into Islam and they try some of these wrong ideas. And what it is for us to do is to clarify, to correct. So, what we have in front of us then is that Allah created this universe out of nothing. And everything that is in it is created. As he said, for example, in the 39th chapter, verse 62, Allah created all things, and He is the agent on which all things depends. And Allah created you and whatever you do. This is the reality. This is stressed for us in order for us to realize that ultimately all good, all evil that takes place in the world it only takes place by the permission of Allah. Therefore, we should not seek any other channels to protect ourselves from evil or to gather for ourselves good, as people commonly 
do today, they will go to fortune tellers. It's big business today. People, all the magazines have fortune tellers in various shapes and forms. You call up, dial a, dial a horoscope, you know, dial a fortune. They'll tell you what to do tomorrow and how to avoid the evil and get all the good. Big business. In a society that has lost touch with Allah, that's what's open to them. You know, anything which would convince them, this person seems to have some power here, they seem to be able to tell us something of the future, because they've built a reputation for themselves. So, let's try to get some good for ourselves. However, Allah has stressed for us that no calamity strikes except by Allah's permission. مَا أَصَابَ مِنْ مُصِيبَةٍ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ Nothing is taking place in this world except by the permission of Allah. And the Prophet Muhammad further emphasized this principle by saying that we should be aware that if the whole of mankind gathered to do something to help us, they could not help us with anything which Allah had not already written for us. Nor if the whole of mankind gathered together to harm us, they could not harm us with anything that Allah had not already written for us. Therefore, what is required of us is to depend on Allah. Put our trust in Allah. This is all that we have to to draw out of this attribute of Allah being the Creator. And this creation exists because of that attribute. Its practical significance to us lies in putting our trust in Allah. Now, there is another aspect besides the fact that creation exists because Allah is the Creator. We can also see from what Prophet has informed us that in the creation there is manifestation also of Allah's attributes of mercy, forgiveness, kindness, etc., etc. This is there. Allah created man in paradise, man and woman in paradise. They disobeyed Allah. But Allah had taught them how to repent, how to turn back to Him and seek His forgiveness and then He would forgive them. Having done that, they were forgiven. Adam became the first prophet of Allah and mankind was absolved of that sin. The story of Adam and Eve is a summary of human existence. Human beings are given a consciousness of God. When Allah created all human beings, as He states in the Quran, He took from Adam all of His descendants and made them all bear witness that Allah is their Lord. So we are all born with that consciousness. He has also given us a consciousness of right and wrong. As Allah says, 
He has inspired each and every soul to an awareness of corruption and righteousness. And he has sent prophets to, to guide them. Revelation. Allah revealed to Adam and Eve through his commandments, commanding them not to eat of the tree. Revelation was there. However, human beings forget. And when they forget Allah, then they fall into sin. However, we can absolve ourselves of that sin by means of repentance. And Allah forgives us when we repent sincerely. As the Prophet said, the one who repents is like the one without sin. This is the message. Prophet said in a hadith collected in Sahih Muslim, if you did not commit sins and turn to Allah seeking His forgiveness, He would have replaced you with another people who would sin, ask Allah's forgiveness, and He would forgive them. If we didn't sin and ask Allah's forgiveness, He would have replaced us with people who would sin and ask His forgiveness and He would forgive them. So in our sinning and asking Allah's forgiveness, his attributes of mercy and forgiveness becomes manifest. Allah knew what we were going to do before He created it. He knew that He was creating a species who would sin. If He didn't want them to sin, if it was not His desire to permit them to sin, that He could have created angels. More angels. But He had already created angels. A manifestation of his creation, act of being the creator, he had already created angels. He created, you know, the aspects of the universe. So he chose to create a being that would disobey his commandments through forgetfulness or simple disobedience, but who would turn back to him in repentance and his attribute of forgiveness would become manifest in them. Similarly, His mercy, Allah is quoted as, Prophet uh, is quoted as saying, when Allah created the universe, He made an obligation on Himself, recorded in a document kept by Him, my mercy precedes my wrath, my anger. He also was reported as saying, Allah created mercy with 100 parts, one of which was sent down upon the jinn and human beings, and other living beings. It is out of this one part that they love each other, show kindness to each other, and even the animals treat their offspring with affection. Allah has reserved the remaining 99 parts, for his true worshippers on the day of judgment. This is the mercy of Allah, manifest in his creation. What is also manifest in creation 
in the act of creation, the creation of man, is his attributes of justice, fairness, which comes out of the judgment at the end of this world. I'm sure we have all read the hadith in which the Prophet said, Allah created some people for hell and some people for hell. I mean, for a lot of us, this is something very heavy. And for the companions, they asked the Prophet then what's the point of doing good deeds then? If Allah created some for heaven and some for hell, what's the point of doing anything? So let it decide. And the Prophet said, each one of you will find it easy to do whatever he was created for. So, if you choose the evil way, find it easy and carry on in that way, well then, that's what you were created for. But ultimately, it is your choice. You choose hell. The fact that Allah has recorded before anything was created, who would be in hell and who would be in heaven, this does not change the fact that it is we who choose. The judgment is only to manifest to those who are going to hell, that they deserve to be in hell. It's only for them, basically. Because if Allah created you and put you in paradise, right, with all that is in paradise, and you see those people in hell suffering as they are and will be, are you going to ask Allah, why did you put me in paradise? You're going to say, Alhamdulillah. That's all. You don't want to, you don't need to question, you don't need to wonder. All you will be is ecstatic that you were of those in paradise. So the judgment is not for you, ultimately, in that ultimate sense. It's for those who are going to hell. Because if you happen to be amongst those who are created and put in hell, you would be the one saying, why me? Why did you put me in hell? And Allah would say, because you would have done so and so and so and so in this life. You would say, no, no, I wouldn't. If you give me a chance, I would, I would, I would do the good things and be in paradise. You would argue too, you know. You would not give up arguing. So Allah, has allowed us to live out our lives. So when we stand before him and our book of deeds is spread before us, we know without a shadow of a doubt that we chose hell. That Allah's judgment is just. There is no injustice in it in any way, shape or form. As Allah says, He oppresses no one. We will know we choose hell.
only thing that remains for us, and I pray that in fact it is not us, who are going to hell, is to beg Allah for another chance. We know we deserve it, but as Allah said on that day, if you see, if you could only see the time when the sinners will bow their heads before their Lord, they bow their heads in shame. They know that Allah's judgment is just that they deserve hell without a doubt. They'll bow their heads saying, O oh Lord, we have now seen and heard. So send us back and we will do righteous deeds. Verily, we now believe with certainty. This is the only response that will be left for them. Or as Allah said in chapter 23, verse 103 to 108, And those whose light scales of good deeds are those who have ruined themselves, and they will be in hell eternally. The fire will burn their faces, and they will grin with disfigured lips. I will say to them, were my verses not recited to you and you denied them, they will deprive our Lord, our misery overcame us, and we were a people astray. Our Lord, bring us out of this, and if we ever return to evil, we will truly be unjust. That's all that we can do, is beg for another opportunity. However, as Allah said, when we die, there remains behind us a barrier, the barzakh. None of us will come back. It is a one-way ticket. Those poor individuals who think you have another chance, you know, this is the New Age religion, they think it's new, but it's just plain old Hindu delusion. That when you die, you got another chance to come back again, you know. And the effects of this actually among Hindus, where I'm in, um, in the UAE, there are a lot of Hindus working there. And uh, every day in the newspaper, you read about a Hindu man or woman who ties a rope to the ceiling fan, which is found in many of the homes there, put it around their necks, kick away the chair, and pass out of this world. Suicide is common amongst them. Why? Because they think they got another chance. And I've got to up now, I can't deal with it anymore. Let me try in the next life. You know. You know. Very unfortunate. You know. It will be a rude awakening for them when they meet the angel of death and they find themselves in the next life realizing that there is no coming back. And in the creation of man is manifest the grace of Allah. This is a particular point which all of us should reflect on and be thankful to Allah for. His grace. And Christians oftentimes they like to refer to us Muslims as those who don't believe in the grace of God. You know, we are those who 
look at God as, you know, judging. It's just about deeds. You do righteous deeds, you go to paradise, you do evil deeds, you go to hell. That's it. No grace there at all. For them, the grace of God is there. For all those who accept that he became a man and was crucified by men to provide salvation for human beings whose sins had become so great that they could not remove that sin through any act of themselves. So it was only with the spilling of the blood of God that we could be absolved of our sins. So for them, if you accept that God spilled His blood, astaghfirullah, that God spilled His blood for mankind's salvation, then you have earned the grace of God. It doesn't matter what you do, no deeds you do are going to hurt you, as long as you have accepted this belief, you have the grace of God. And this is why, you know, especially the born-agains, you know, they will come at you, man, they are certain about paradise. We as Muslims also believe in grace. Actually, it plays a major and significant role. Oftentimes it is not stressed. And it's important for us to realize how the grace of God is manifest in our creation. The Prophet Muhammad said, Observe moderation, but if you fail, try to do as much as you can, moderately, and be happy. For none of you will enter paradise only because of his deeds. Try to be moderate. Do as much as you can moderately. And when you've done as much as you can, be happy. Thank God. Be grateful to God. Because none of us will enter paradise merely on the basis of our deeds, good deeds, that is. Of course, when the companions heard that, they said, O Messenger of Allah, not even you. And the Prophet said, not even I. Were it not for Allah, that Allah wrapped me in His mercy and His grace, Even the Prophet Muhammad would not have entered paradise were it not for the mercy and grace of Allah. And he completed saying, And bear in mind that the deed most loved by Allah is one done constantly, even though it is small. What does this mean? It means that God's grace is manifest in our lives in that 
were he to hold us to account one good deed, one evil deed, equal to each other, we would not enter paradise. No one. Not even the prophets of Allah. But Allah through His grace and mercy has multiplied the value of the good deeds. Allah says in the sixth surah, Al-Imran, verse 160, Whoever brings a good deed shall have the value of ten like it. And whoever brings an evil deed will only be punished with one like it. And they will not be wrong. This is Allah's grace. Good deeds, in al-hasanat, is hidden as say you ask. Good deeds erase evil deeds. One good deed will erase at least ten evil deeds. This is the grace of God. Allah's grace is not arbitrary. Simply because you say, I believe you have His grace no matter what you do. No. The more good you do, the more of His grace is manifest in you. The less good you do, the less of His grace is manifest in you. If you choose evil and reject the good, then you don't receive His grace. No matter what you say. You say, I'm a Muslim. I believe, but you really don't believe. It's only words you're saying. Then you will not be subject to the grace of Allah. So, the creation is a manifestation of Allah's attribute of being the creator. In the creation of man within the scheme of things, there is manifest Allah's attributes of mercy, His attributes of justice and grace, and this is the reason for the creation of man from the point of view of Allah. From the human perspective, from human perspective, what is the purpose of man's creation? Why did God create man in terms of for what purpose, relative to man, then this is the one that we all know and are familiar with in Surah al zariyat chapter 51, verse 56, I have created the jinn and mankind only for my worship. So relative to Allah, we are created in a means or a way in which God has chosen to manifest His attributes of creation, mercy, grace, etc., etc. And He could have chosen another way. He could have chosen another creation. But this is the one he chose. 
But relative to us as human beings, we know that our purpose is to worship Allah. As we said, Allah doesn't need our worship. As Allah didn't need to create, He doesn't need our worship. When He created us to worship Him, He didn't create us out of a need for our worship. Because Allah has no need. And in a famous hadith, hadith Qudsi, in which Allah is quoted as saying, If all of you, jinn and mankind, worshipped like the most righteous amongst you, it would not increase the dominion of Allah in any way, shape, or form. And if all of us, jinn and mankind, rejected and were evil and corrupt as the most corrupt of mankind, it would not decrease the dominion of Allah in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, when we look for the purpose of worship, we have to look into man. Allah created us to worship Him because we need to worship Him. This is something which He has given us as a means of benefiting ourselves. We are the ones who benefit from worship. Worship has been established fundamentally for the growth, the spiritual growth of man. The growth takes place through the remembrance of Allah. Worship is there fundamentally. When you look at all the various aspects of worship, you will see the core of it is focused on the remembrance of Allah. Aqimis Salah Nidhikri Establish the prayer for my remembrance. This is the essence. And all of the other aspects of worship you will find that essence there. For the consciousness of God. As Allah said that He has prescribed for us fasting as He prescribed for those before us in order that we may fear Him. In order that we may be conscious of Him. Remembrance of Allah. Worship is there for us to remember Allah. And it is in the remembrance of Allah that we achieve righteousness. Because it is in the forgetfulness of Allah. When we forget Allah, that shaitan is able to operate within us and cause us to disobey Allah, fall into sin. So it is only in his remembrance that we can attain salvation. Salvation lies for man in the remembrance of Allah. 
So you see all of the various acts that we do. Saying Bismillah before eating. Saying Bismillah before going to our wives and going into the bathroom and all the different prayers etc. that we make from the Sunnah. All of it is to help us to maintain a consciousness of Allah so that we can grow spiritually. Now, time is running out. And I've only gotten about halfway through. So, I'm going to have to shorten things up a bit, just uh, quickly run through some of the other aspects. That is, that in the creation of man also in this world, we know Allah has said that He created us to test us. Which of us is best in deeds? He's not testing us to know, in the sense that He doesn't know, but this world is a test for us in order again that we can grow spiritually. We cannot develop the spiritual qualities of generosity unless some of us have more money than others. And then we are required to give of the wealth that we have to others. When we give, we grow. Similarly, if we were not in a position where others had more than us, then we wouldn't have the ability to develop the higher spiritual quality of contentment, patience, satisfaction with what Allah has given us. If others didn't have more than us, we wouldn't have that struggle to develop that quality. If everybody has the same, then how to develop it? So it is all there in order to bring out of us the higher spiritual qualities which enable us to attain the state which makes us suitable and eligible to return to paradise. Paradise from which we were created. We were created in paradise. And for paradise. To our choices, we have left. And this life is the field of testing so we can grow to again attain a state where we deserve paradise. So, The purpose of our creation is the worship of Allah. This life is a test. A test for us. Will we worship Allah or will we forget Him? So this is where our focus has to begin. When we're looking at our priorities, we then have to focus on this as being the primary objective. The primary objective is to turn our lives into lives of worship, lives of righteousness, morally upright lives. This is our primary objective. So when we look at the issues, Khilafah, 
جناب دعوة We have to make sure that we have established a basic foundation of righteousness where we are worshipping Allah before we go to things which are beyond us before we leave this country and go somewhere else to do something and we try to change the world and we haven't changed ourselves this is a trick of Satan to get us very busy and concerned about all of the politics of the Muslim world and who should be a leader and who is a disbeliever and all these things so we can scream and shout and call for khilafah and all these things shout yes, it's very easy to make that shout you know, that, that cry you must have a challenge bring back the khilafah but after that then what? After we've screamed and shouted and paraded and... Then what? If we haven't established a life of worship ourselves in our own locality, which is what Allah is going to ask us about on the Day of Judgment. He's not going to ask you about whether the Khilafah was established or not. He's going to ask you whether you did all you could to establish a life of worship or not. That is what he's going to ask. So, we have to begin with ourselves. Our acts of worship have to be acts which actually have an effect on ourselves. We have to go beyond the ritual. We have to make Islam real in our lives. We have to live according to the spirit, not only the letter, but the spirit of Islam. When we make it real in our individual lives and in our families, how we deal with our wives and our children, and we look at the environment around us because we have to go with the things that are most directly related to us. We look at the environment around us. We don't have Islamic schools. We don't have Islamic institutions. The priority for us is the establishment of those institutions, the establishment of a community, an Islamic community here where we are. This is priority. This is number one priority. For us to focus on other parts of the world and we have not fulfilled our responsibility here. Our children are going to non-Muslim schools being indoctrinated with kufr and corruption. But we are raising the banner of every movement in the world we have failed we have not fulfilled our responsibility our priorities are upside down we have put the cart before the horse this is the reality we have the means here 
to establish Islam as communities. There are enough Muslims here. There is enough knowledge, enough technology, enough wealth to establish communities. But we have not made this our priorities. And this is where we have failed. And this is what has made us eligible for the curse of Allah. Has made us split up in our ranks. Because we are all concerned about those external issues beyond our shores, beyond our environment and our community. We are so concerned with those external issues with all the different opinions of this one and that one and this movement and that movement, anything else, all of us will differ because we all have different opinions and we have not established Muslim schools. If we had focused on those priorities, put our energies into that, we will find our ranks come together strong. Because it takes sacrifice. It requires real sacrifice from us to establish the community here. It doesn't take any sacrifice to raise slogans. Very easy to call for the Khilafah. To call for Jihad. Very easy to make these calls. But very difficult to establish Islam. To make the necessary sacrifices to make Islam a reality here. And that in fact is our priority. Of course, it must be in accordance with knowledge. I'm not saying that we don't need to know what is the correct way to worship Allah. Who is Allah? What is Islam? Of course we have to know these things. Because how can we set up an institution to educate Muslims about what we don't know? So that goes without saying. But having understood those basic aspects of Islam, then we have to apply it. We apply it in the communities around us. It means that brothers and sisters have to educate themselves. They have to gain the necessary skills to build a community. It is haram for a brother to stay at home begging from this system for his livelihood, collecting the dough. No matter how he justifies it, well, you know, I've been working and I've been paying so much they've taken out of my income all these years, now I want to take, take back my rights. Well, okay, if this is your philosophy, then what you should do is you calculate how much they took out of your salary for the last five years or two years that you've been working, and that much, add it all up, and that much you took out of the door, but then you don't have any right after that. If this is your philosophy, that no, nobody is going to do that. They just want the general justification, you know, it's my right. So, they don't educate themselves, they don't get the kind of skills. This is a society which offers, pays for education, pays for us to go to school and, you know, to various levels. But people don't take advantage of that. They say, well, you know, we go to university, there's fitna. There are women. 
women teachers, Fitna. That's why I stay at home and sleep and beg the government for my sustenance. No. When people came to Prophet and asked permission to beg, he forbade them. Begging is sinful. Brothers need to know that. Taking the dole is begging. And it is sinful. Unless you are truly incapable in the sense that you are a cripple or you have some inabilities or you lost your job and absolutely no way. I mean, you have to have very clear justification. Not the one that you give me or you give other people, but justification before Allah. That you have the physical capability to go out and work and you are not working. You are not being productive. You are not a part of the solution. You are a part of the problem. A problem which your children will inherit from you. They will grow up with that dull mentality and we will have generations of those who will just be willing to take the dole, take from the government. And we will not build anything. We will not produce anything. And Muslims will be scorned in the society. We will be known for our laziness and everything else that comes with it. We will not be able to present Islam to the communities at large because we don't represent Islam. We are bad examples. We are discouraging people to even want to know about Islam because we are the worst of examples. When we were supposed to be the best, we are the worst. So my dear brothers, uh, unfortunately, the time, brothers and sisters, the time which was allotted, which was supposed to have been until 4.30, has been cut short. The original schedule on the uh, program was until 4.30, but, oh sorry, it's until 4. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, time has run out. I know you have some questions, and uh, I think you only have one minute to answer them. <laughs> so, I'll just have to say that, inshallah, in the evening in the panels, hopefully we can get into the questions uh, in some depth. And I'm sorry about this, but uh, again, just in closing, I'd just like to say, I'd just like to wrap up, and uh, I've been told we do have Ten minutes for questions. We can get out some questions. Uh, you have some here already? Yeah. I'd just like to say that uh, our priorities have to be set in order. Number one is the establishment of Islam in ourselves, in our families, and in our communities. Having established Islam, then it is our duty to convey the message of Islam to those around us. That is the next step, to convey Islam to those around us. Without establishing it ourselves, we will not be very effective in conveying it. That doesn't mean that simply because we haven't established it, we don't strive to convey because the requirement to convey Islam is something which is the duty of each and every Muslim. Every Muslim is obliged to convey the word of Allah to those around them. Allah tells us in the Quran, ud'u 
Call to the world of your Lord. We are all commanded to call, to invite people to Islam. And Prophet Muhammad in order to remove the doubts that we might have in our minds that well, we are incapable of calling to Islam is only for the experts, the scholars, etc. He said, Convey whatever you have from me, even if it is only one verse from the Quran. So the obligation is on each and every one of us. And we have to feel that this is an obligation. Because if we do not fulfill that obligation, then we fall under the curse of Allah. The curse for the sin of hiding the knowledge. Hiding knowledge of the way to salvation. This is a sin, a major sin. About which Allah said, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَكْتُمُونَ مَا أَنزَلْنَا مِنَ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَالْهُدَىٰ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا بَيَّنَّاهُ لِلنَّاسِ لِكْفِ الْكِتَابِ أُولَٰئِكَ يَلْعَنُهُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَلْعَنُهُمُ اللَّائِنُونَ Here only goes and hides what we have revealed the clear messages and guidance in the book, the Qur'an. After it has been made clear to mankind, such are cursed by Allah and cursed by all who curse. This is Allah's statement. A curse on those who hide the word of Allah from mankind. So we need to reflect. Did our priority straight? Every day we come in contact with the non-Muslims, non-believers around us. If we are silent, we have opportunity to express, to inform, to convey the word, and we don't, then we are sinning. Da'wah, calling and inviting people to Islam, is a day-to-day responsibility, which none of us is excused from. Inshallah, I hope these points are clear, and in the few minutes remaining, we'll try to answer quickly a couple of questions. I would just like to say one point before we go into the questions. There was a particular question which had come up last night, and in explaining it, I gave a judgment from myself, from what I had read and understood, which was regarding a man and woman in marriage, that if a man does not maintain his wife, she has the right to refuse him in bed. I stated that last night. It is the opinion of some scholars. However, according to our brother scholars who are here with us, this opinion is a minority opinion. And uh, the majority opinion is that as long as the marriage is there, the man has a right to his wife. However, as I said, and they reiterate, if a man does not maintain his wife, she has the right to seek divorce. If the man does not maintain his wife, she has the right to seek divorce. But as long as she has chosen not to, chosen to remain with him, then she, by accepting that circumstance, cannot refuse him in bed. So I'd just like to correct that for you. For the lecture on the priorities of a Muslim, what our priorities as Muslims are, 
uh, I have a few announcements that I'm going to make. And while, while I do that, inshallah, I'll check it out and look at these questions that we have here in the short time that's left. Uh, the most important one is there's a little boy who calls himself Muhammad. He's being held up at the end of the table. He's lost his mother and father. They're known to him as Mama and Baba. So, he's right there, if anybody can see him or knows who he belongs to. Another uh, announcement is that Brother Babak, or I don't know how to pronounce it, maybe Babak, B-A-B-A-K, your wife is not well. Would you please meet her where you met her yesterday? And just one other announcement that sort of relates to that is that although we would like to help as much as possible due to the number of requests, it is not possible to announce all the personal messages from the husbands and wives and the families in the matter of the talks last night and such as this one I just mentioned, uh, emergencies accepted. So as far as making arrangements with your wife, your families, would you please make these arrangements prior to the talks this evening as to where and when you will meet and those those things. Of course, any type of emergency situations will be announced. Okay, the first question, the first question, uh, if Hijra is an obligation on us, how can it be allowed for us to set up a community in this Kafir land, this disbelieving land? Yes, Hijra is an obligation on us. If we are incapable of practicing Islam, if we are not about establishing Islam and conveying the word of Allah to the people of Islam. This is what justifies our stay here. If we're not about that, then we should make hijrah. But then again, there are some people who have no means. They don't have the economic means to get out of this country. So what do they do then? Do they just jump up and down for khilafah? Is that the other option for them? No. They have to make good their situation here. Make it as Islamic as they can. In order to protect their families that eventually they may be able to raise enough, you know, economic means to get out of here as a family and go to an Islamic land. As I said, Hijra is an obligation in general. However, if people are involved in conveying the word of Allah, then that is justification for staying. If they are about establishing Islam here, conveying that word to the people of Islam, then Hijra is not an obligation on them. It's an obligation on those who are just living the life, who are not practicing Islam properly, their children are going to non-Muslim schools, it's okay, they don't care, it doesn't matter. Hijra is wajib on them. Because they're not able to practice Islam properly and they're not trying to do anything about it. So they're in sin for remaining here. But those who are involved in trying to establish community in order to convey the word of Allah to those around them, they are justified in remaining here. And that should be their priority. There are some people, or some Muslims, who when promoting the notion of Khilafah and advocating the downfall of the Muslim leaders, they say that they are the ones actually promoting 
the fundamentals of Tawheed. Because one of Allah's attributes is that He is the lawgiver and the ruler. And the rulers do not judge by what Allah has revealed. Hence, their groups say that they are actually in reality promoting Tawheed and Ibadah and not just Khilafah. The idea of promoting the setting up of Islamic law, of course, this is an aspect of Tawheed, which none of us in the process of learning Islam and teaching it can deny or should ignore. However, what we spoke of is priority. We cannot here, at this point in time, do or say anything which will produce a khilafah. No matter what we say and we do here, we cannot produce a khilafah. The only way that we may be a part of the process is to go to the Muslim lands which are somewhere closer to the establishment of the khilafah and help those that are in that process. But here, standing here, living here, we cannot. So it is empty, empty words. If we are keeping it as a part of our educational policy, that when we're educating people, this is part of understanding the whole scheme of things, we educate them, fine. But it doesn't become the focus. That Tawheed al-Ibadah, or the unity of worship, can only be done if we establish Khilafah. No. No. Because there were many cases of the prophets before Prophet Muhammad and in certain aspects of his prophethood when he was not the caliph in Mecca. Are we saying that Prophet was not fulfilling Tawheed al-Ibadah? That is nonsense. It is Tawheed is in concept and in practice. Practice when possible. This is a principle of calling for the good. We change with our hands when we are able. We don't focus on trying to change with our hands when we are unable. We change what we can. What we can do is here and now, we can make changes in the society. We can make real changes in the society. We can have an impact on the society. We can convey the word of Islam, the word of Allah, to the people of the society. If we focus on the establishment of Islam within ourselves and in our communities. That we can change. And this is what Allah is going to ask us about. What we didn't change when we could change. Not what we couldn't change that we didn't uh, focus on. What is this? Was the presence of our Lord Most High witness? Oh. Question related to the Hadith when the whole of mankind was taken from Adam's loins. Actually, this is um, from Quran, Ali Imran. And question. Am I not your Lord, unless to be Rabbikum? This is a well-known verse. The question is, was the presence of Allah Most High witnessed 
visually. Well, we can't get into that. You know, uh, vision normally is associated with eyes. Uh, we see things, vision is with the eyes. When Allah took us from Adam, we weren't born. We didn't have physical bodies to be looking with our eyes. So there is no issue of vision of Allah, etc., etc. The point is that Allah questioned us and made us bear witness. And we all bore witness. Jazakallah khair, Shaykh Bilal. And with that...